Welcome to the Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast, the tirade-filled movie debate podcast hosted by two film critics, cool dads, and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. I'm Naughty Boy Will Johnson. Ooh, tell me that's got a theme to goes with the movie here a little bit. What snuff film are we reviewing <laughs> no, tonight, just, ladies and gentlemen? I'm gents? just naughty. I'm just naughty. <laughs> well, when you Spank say you're naughty, with and the then one... hawk. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. And then when you hear a woman snicker in the background, it only makes it better. So, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we're damn glad to have you folks. Uh, we are all here for tantrum's sake. We're a shared passions and high fives wash away any place for hate. In the end, we encourage you all to love what you love. But for now, the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on. This week, we're going to talk about Ethan Hawke's The Black Phone, directed by Scott Derrickson. And it's been recommended by our guest, that giggle you hear in the background. That's right. It is the blonde in front. Katie Glywell back on the Cinephile Hissy Fit podcast. Hello, hello, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Uh, I usually have to pay to have a woman uh, chuckle at me. But uh, anyways, that's oh. kind of cool. That's free. Uh, so how are you doing, Katie? It's it's good to have you back. You're one of the best guests we've ever had. And I'm not just saying that because you're here. Uh, I have no, receipts. I, he's right. I have receipts. <laughs> I've said that on Facebook Messenger. So I have receipts. It's true. He has. Yes. Definitely. You, do, definitely. you have. Thank you so much. I'm right next doing to the bottomless well. stuff I'm we doing, talked about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing very well. Thank you, guys. It's a little hot in Chicago right now, especially after the rain. But uh, it's uh, very fun uh, these past two weeks going to a lot of screenings that have happened. Very excited about this film that we're going to talk about. And yeah, everything's going pretty well in Chicago right now. Not bad. Well, our format is this. Um, The recommending lover is going to go first. They will get five uninterrupted minutes to shower their praise and state their high-minded case. The hater will follow with five uninterrupted minutes of their own to present (laughs) their counterpoints with any manner of intellectual scorched earth. I, Don Shanahan, have not seen the movie, so I'm sitting this one out as moderator, shitster, and question asker. So between these two, after that, we'll open it up for 15 minutes to share a conversation where I scratch my head, ask dumb questions. But more than anything, the hissy fit really gets chippy. So ladies and gentlemen, let's go. Katie, I hear you're the lover of this one. You're up first. I am. All right. Well, ring, ring, hooker, ring, ring. Yes, The Black Phone is the film that you should be picking up this weekend, directed by Scott Derrickson. And written by Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill, which, if you are a fan of um, Sinister, I believe those are also the duo that put that together. And in acting-wise, that is in The Black Phone and also in Sinister, you've got Ethan Hawke and James Ransom in a small part, but uh, one that I love. And Mason Thames and Madeline McGraw. Uh, Black Phone is about a 13-year-old boy named Finn, played by Mason Thames. Uh, There is a uh, child abductor uh, named The Grabber in 1978 Denver who is grabbing children. He grabs Finn. He takes him to his soundproof basement, and there is a Black Phone there, and um, it starts to ring. It is disconnected. It should not be doing this. But uh, the on the other line are all of the victims of the grabber, and they're trying to do everything they can and get and advise Finn in every way possible so that uh, Finn does not become the grabber's next victim. Now, one of the things that 
really unsettles me about this film is the fact that 1970s, 1970s, you know, 1980s, anytime there's a child abduction, if you watch anything regarding true crime and all that stuff, basically, I, I mean, I'm a fan of it. You see those stories. And even now these, uh, these are, uh, these are, uh, cases that, um, still can't be solved. So when you have, um, child abduction in the late seventies, like, you know, there's no DNA, you barely have fingerprints, but there's nothing, nothing to go on. Uh, it's unsettling. And I think they do a very good job of that. One of the, uh, ways they try to, you know, help the police to try and figure out what's going on is there's a little bit of supernatural element into it which is uh, by Madeline McGraw, who plays Finn's sister, Gwen. Uh, she has a little bit a gift of uh, seeing certain things in her dreams, which her is something that her mother also had and that has been beaten literally out of them um, or tried to by their father, played by Jeremy Davies. That is a small role that Davies has, but... One of the things I I thought when I was thinking about this film, it's kind of hard to, and well, I mean, it's very hard to have a alcoholic uh, actor or an alcoholic uh, uh, character who's also beating their children without having, with having, trying to make something of, I don't know, you, you, you I mean, I hated him in the film. I hate him in the film, but you need to have that um, actor who can have that nuance in there to try and make it somewhat, I, it's not, I don't even want to say justifiable, but just that so that you don't hate them throughout the film and you still have um, those kids that you absolutely love. I think uh, I like the fact that the film has nods to Silence the Lambs and Videodrome and Sinister and uh, Silver Bullets. Uh, what else? Misery. But the main thing about this is the casting. I mean, Ethan Hawke is creepy as, I don't know if I can swear on this, but uh, as the kids say it, creepy AF as the grabber. I mean, it's one of his best performances. I have been saying this in 2022 that this is a year of Ragnarok between this, Moon Knight, uh, his small part in The Northman. I think he is killing it these past six months. Uh, Mason Thames, I think, you know, playing Finn as this sensitive yet determined, I mean, he's in this circumstance that is absolutely unbearable and completely shocking. And he plays that character so well, because I mean, it's not like his life was all that great beforehand. It was definitely better than what he's, the circumstance that he's in now. Uh, but he does it so well, but ever, like every single scene that he's in though, all I can think of is like when they do a biopic of Brad Renfro, call this kid up because he is this, he's Brad Renfro's um, doppelganger. If no one remembers who Brad Renfro is, unfortunately he overdosed in 2008. He was a child actor that was in The Client. And if you think of The Client, he's also in a number of other films. But uh, every time I saw his face, like it is identical. I even looked on IMDb and I was like, God, I mean, I have to think that the casting had something to do, or at least casting directors, when they see him, they're like, you, yeah, let's get him in some things. But 
with all that said, the star of this film is Madeline McGraw. She is a freaking powerhouse. I don't even know if she's in double digits yet. And she is, uh, I mean, she steals every scene. Like when I'm watching this and all I can say is like, I was just writing down when I grow up, I want to be Gwen Blake. Like she has one of the most memorable quotes of the film. Uh, when they're looking for all the kids, um, they say, it's like, you know, I, you don't think they're going to find them. Um, do you? She's, and she says, not like they want to. And that's one of those things about any sort of missing person um, case. Like you need to like those first 48 hours are the most important. And with something like this, and especially in the, like I said, in the late seventies, I mean, it's, there's like no clues. Like, I mean, the, you know, do, uh, would you think in the film that the police, um, does it seem justifiable that the police are going to ask a nine-year-old what the hell is happening on most certain, on most cases, probably not. But the fact that they have nothing to go on, I mean, this is desperation. This is something like, Hey, nine-year-olds who happen to have some dreams about some stuff. Why don't you call into um, the police and we'll give you you know, a sucker. No, this is out of pure desperation that they're doing this. And I know that's probably going to annoy some people in the horror fandom about that, but it's like, look, supernatural or not, I, you know, you want a happy ending and spoiler. That is another thing that I think some horror fans are going to be mad about is because this does have a happy ending that does not happen. And that is what I love. Like with all the cynicism, with all the things that are going on, I love the fact that this has an actual happy ending to it. Like you could pot probably count on like your hand. How many horror films with horrible situations have an actual happy ending? And I'm not talking about someone surviving because believe me, those people are messed up for life. When you look at some of those films, this one actually has a happy ending to it. And I love that. I say see it. Um, I think the direction is great. I think the production design is great. I love, um, again, the casting and the costuming. The only fault I majorly do have it is November in um, Denver. No way. There would have been snow. There would have been people in heavier coats. This looked like it was maybe September or um, late spring. That is the biggest um, obstacle, or that's the biggest fault I have on this film. Otherwise, yeah, it's definitely going to be in my top 10. I think uh, I think that Ethan Hawke, uh, the grabber, is definitely going to be a horror, I don't know, horror icon, but I definitely um, feel like he's going to be someone memorable that you're not going to forget. I like that they don't have a backstory on him. I think maybe if they're going to do something, it would possibly be a prequel to the grabber uh, and not a sequel. But um, that's fine by me. If this is like one and done, it's worth it. And that's my thoughts. Nicely wow. done. That was <laughs> the 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 most tidy five thirteen minutes we've ever had. That's good stuff right there. Uh, uh, just to Katie just to Bible, do a thank you. Before, you will. Go ahead. Yeah, before my five minutes uh, or twelve or whatever, uh, I uh, Ma uh, Madeline McGraw has been right. uh she says she's 13 
She has uh, made a living on playing young versions of other people. Like she is in Pacific Rim Uprising as a young Amara, Ant-Man and the Wasp as a young Hope, Mitchell versus the Machines as a young Katie. She's also Bonnie in Toy Story 4. Um, and she was in Cars 3, amongst other things. So she's had a oh, little, son of a she's got quite a little, uh, quite a little uh, collection of roles despite her age. So nice. There you go. All yeah. right, Naughty Boy, that's that's good job. Now it's time for you to play the game. <laughs> oh, indeed. Ooh, indeed. I can't segue it better than that. Good luck, Will. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> all right, well, Black Phone, I, I really came into this one. I'm not going to say expectations because I didn't watch any trailers. I didn't know anything about it except who was in it and who was doing it. And I am con- contractually obligated by Disney and Marvel to point out that Scott Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill also wrote and directed Doctor Strange. But um, I, I don't know. Like, I, I had a lot, of, a lot of hope for this one just based on the people involved, uh, just, just on name alone. I will give the movie uh, – I'm not going to go into details of what the movie is about because uh, Katie already did that. Um, so you guys kind of know what's going on, but, um, I think the, the, the main trio of performances, uh, Ethan Hawke, um, Mason Thames, is that his name? Uh, and, um, Madeline McGraw are excellent. They're, they're really fantastic. Madeline McGraw has a couple of, um, fantastic profane (laughs) moments that really like, that really get the audience laughing and stuff like that. Um, and, and Mason is very good. He's, he's very good at selling, like being under duress and being scared. He, he seems like a 13 year old that would, or whatever age he is. He seems like someone who is in danger and it's, it's not precocious and everything. He's very good. Ethan, Ethan Hawke, of course, is amazing in everything he does. I do like that. We don't get any backstory on him. There's a brilliant aspect of the film where towards the end, like he wears the mask the whole time. And that's why, you know, it's a good actor because he doesn't need to show his face. He can act by partially showing his face or not showing his face at all. And there's a moment where you get this hint about who he is because, um, you know, the, (laughs) the kid manages to take his mask off and he just freaks out. Like, don't look at my face. You know, it's, that's interesting. And I like, I like when the film gives you a little mystery like that. However, my main, my major gripe with the film Uh, Well, there's two major gripes. I'll get into the other one in a second. But the first one is that, yes, I understand things are supernatural, and I understand that there are things going on that are not of this world. Um, However, like, a lot of things have to have some kind of internal logic to it. There has to be some, some rules that are established of how these things work. And unfortunately, there's way too many things introduced in this film that do not make any sense and are not explained. Now, like I said, a little backstory on a character, I'm okay with a little mystery there. You don't need to tell me everything. But this, the whole way of the children escaping is based off of two supernatural elements. One, the ghosts of the past, whether they're like actual ghosts or they're segments in time or something. Like there's a lot of weird, I think it's just there for the imagery a lot of dead bodies of kids talking and popping out of nowhere and doing weird things. And then you've also got the psychic girl who has these dreams. You have this idea that her mom had the same thing in the past. Like it, it I, I, I would take one of those. I, I would need to have some kind of connection. They, they do at some one point 
connect them in that like one of the dead kids is communicating through the dreams of the girl like there's just i mean i'm not like a horror expert i would say i'm above average with horror but even like even like take something like a nightmare in elm street i mean sure freddy's power always kind of changes but there is a basic fundamental rule it's that when you go to sleep that's where freddy gets you like there's basic rules of how these things go and i I think it's just fluctuating and all over the place you're more trying to figure out how it's all put together and then when they don't give you an explanation or they don't connect it in some way you're kind of sitting there twiddling your thumbs going well cool there's a black phone that isn't connected and he's talking to the dead sometimes he needs the phone sometimes he doesn't his sister has dreams sometimes she's in the dreams of the kids sometimes she's not it was just more maddening than anything else and in my last my last minute I, I'm all for period films. I love period films, but I think post Stranger Things, there has been this thing that a lot of movies do now where I think it's more about setting something that will play with nostalgia for no purpose other than nostalgia. This film has some awesome needle drops and it looks fantastic. The production design is great, but I see no reason why this should be uh, other than maybe the idea of like the missing milk carton idea uh, of having this in the 70s we've seen it with like summer of 84 and the it movie when they updated that to the 80s so it has a stranger things vibe. wonder woman 84 the little things was set in the 90s for no reason whatsoever there's all kinds of this time play that i think doesn't service the story it's just there to be glossy and happy and weird and i i don't like that i don't like going to see something that is there just so you can have the really cool needle drops? I know people will probably disagree with me on that one, and it does make up for it with really good uh, production design because its seventies looks great. The clothes are perfect. the The neighborhood looks perfect. It looks like something you would see in the late seventies or eighties. Um, I just don't get why they did it. And lastly, as much as I love Derrickson and Cargill, Cargill's a great follow on Twitter, by the way. Really nice guy. Talks to you gives you writing tips and things like that. I think it's a really bad, clunky screenplay. So that's my thoughts. Interesting. This is going to be a good crosstalk and debate. But before that, we will break for a short announcement from our non-corporate partners and friends. We know you've been scared watching horror movies by yourself. Well, now you don't have to. Hang out with Ruminations of Redrum, all things horror, from movies to the latest spooky games we've played. Come hang out, but hurry. The killer's behind you. All right, welcome back. Well, you two, I'm just going <laughs> to let the, you know, let the fishing line go and see what happens here. <laughs> okay, Katie, what, what are your thoughts on my thoughts? Because I, I, I addressed a, f- a few things that you didn't necessarily bring up because you were more focused on, I, I did like how you brought up the idea of like, and we've seen this before, like, for instance, the dead zone or something like that, where it's like the cops have no leads. And they're going with whatever they can get, and they know that this girl has dreams. And there's maybe this indication that the mother also might have done something at some point. Uh, because why would the cops? I know that they mentioned that she has evidence of the crime scene that only the cops knew about, so they're cluing in on her. But uh, I do like that aspect when you brought it up. But what are your thoughts on my criticisms? Well, with the supernatural aspect, if this uh the one connection regarding that is that they're two their siblings that have that supernatural uh tendency towards them if they were two people who had no connection whatsoever i could definitely see your point but considering that uh gwen 
and she has dreams, but then she also has to like, you know, try and summon them when she like has her little uh candle and place card and stuff like that when she's trying to um um hopefully get the dreams. Uh and she's had this before, but um who knows regarding with Finn if he's if he's had this before because the way that um their father reacted to when Gwen um you know had to when when he found out that Gwen was um t- speaking with the policeman when he beat the crap out of her with a belt I mean and that was that was a violent scene like that was oh ooh. kids take a kids take a beating in this movie I mean kids yeah. I, I joke around that I I love child death in movies but I mean. This is a little bit more realistic, and this was brutal. I mean, kids are getting, like, shit kicked out of them. They're getting beat up. They're getting spanked with belts. They're getting slashed. They're getting thrown around. Like, it's somebody gets a rock to the head at one point. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, Damn. kids get brutalized in this movie. So Yeah, and I mean, with that, I think either of them, if they have any gifts, I mean, you know, they've basically been hiding those. And I mean, it's not like she... When uh, Gwen comes forward, she told a friend who it was her brother. And it's like, well, you know, I saw this and stuff like that. And um, I saw this and I saw the black balloons. And that's when um, the her friend told her parents, her fa- parents told the cops. And with right. Finn um, having that supernatural, um, you know, having the victims calling him and stuff like that. Again, I think that's a gift from the mom. It's like it just could be. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you think so you think the black phone is so Ethanoc just happens to have a black phone that doesn't work. Correct. But but uh Finn, is that his name, has this ability to tap into it like by talk is it kind of like a frequency kind of thing where he can open the phone and talk mm-hmm. in the past kind of thing or in another dimension? I mean, is that what you're saying? He has the power to do? Kind I would of? say he's mm. got some, I mean. I would say that in that moment of stress, like when you have, like, cause I mean, he's never, well, he's had some such stressful moments that we see, you know, before and stuff like that, but that seems like an everyday thing. But in this situation, who knows if since he's in this situation with this grabber and he knows that he's probably going to die, maybe that triggers something in him that his sister has that allows that supernatural um, gift to come forward, and that is his gift. But the key that word, is my, that the is key, my interpretation. The key word you just used there is maybe, and I mm. unfortunately, unless it's some kind of philosophical discussion, I need more than maybes when it comes to something like this because I I kind of wanted. Now it's not. I mean, this is not my movie. I didn't make it, so it's not fair what I wanted. But I really think this would have benefited from a little bit more because horror films don't have to be supernatural. Like, I think this would have really benefited from a um, psychological thriller, you know, child murderer <laughs> kidnapping thing. But yeah. it, instead, it I, I was taken out of the movie once the dream thing. I was like, OK, um, that it's kind of a trope in a lot of movies like Dead Zone and other things like people think they have psychics and they come in. I mean, they based the whole show about, you know, a guy who thinks he's a psychic and the cops use him to investigate crimes. So that was something I kind of was like, okay, I'm I'm cool with that. I get that. But once like he's talking on the phone, they make it very clear that the phone is talking to him. Yeah. And, and he turns around and there's one of the dead kids talking to him. I was really taken out of the movie. I think it just, 
it was such a left turn for where I think they were going because it was really grounded to me uh, in realism. Like, it really felt like there was a lot of danger in the air. But once I see, like, floating kids and uh, kids kind of, like, you know, talking and taunting and saying, like, oh, we don't remember our names and stuff, it really kind of threw me off because I think the horror, I think it's enough, just like the ideas of the supernatural part being, for me, too many different pieces. I think the horror is Ethan Hawk is enough. Like, I think all you need is just Ethan Hawk being a creepy weirdo uh, for this to be an effective horror film. Now you're throwing layers and layers of other stuff on it that I think takes away a little bit from Ethan Hawk's performance because he, I mean, Ethan Hawk's amazing and everything. Um, I've had the honor of seeing him on uh, Broadway. I saw him in a play with Paul Dano, uh, oddly enough, kind of similar. He was in a similar movie like this called Prisoners. <laughs> or he's kidnapped. Oh, yeah. um, but I saw him on Broadway, and it just he's just so, like, uh, there's not really many actors out there that have the ability to be super intense uh, and super likable, <laughs> you know, and, and all that stuff. And that plays well with his character, because mostly Ethan Hawke plays good guys. I mean, he's played conflicted people. He's played villains before. But, you know, when you're seeing him this evil, like, I thought that was enough. Just have it be the kid versus Ethan Hawke in a battle of wits, you know, make it like room, like a horror version of room, you know, with Brie Larson. But, <laughs> but like I said, I, I, I thought the supernatural elements uh, dulled it a little bit for me because it, it took the tension away because it was, I don't know. I just, and, and then I want to hmm. talk about a plot hole, major plot hole. Oh I boy. Think. These are fun. Um, now, now I've talked to a couple people and they told me like, they were talking about the plot hole, and I, I see some of the explanation of it is Ethan Hawke has a okay. brother in yeah. this movie. Um, now, it, they mentioned that he's from Durango, which I'm assuming is far away from Denver. Um, and he's just visiting, and he likes to do a lot of cocaine. But he's literally living above the basement where Ethan Hawke keeps his children that he kidnaps. And there are many portions of the film where part of the Ethan Hawke's game, the naughty boy part, part of his game is he'll leave like the cell door open for the pure intention of the kid trying to escape. And then he can punish them by spanking them with belts. Right. So well, they, well, he beats them until they, um, until they're knocked out, which is right. right. Yeah. Right. But the thing is, is that they, they indicate at one point that he's literally sitting in the kitchen not sleeping for days, waiting for the kid to do this. And I'm thinking the whole time, like, what if the brother comes out of his room and the kid's just standing there and he's got his mask on and the whip and he's shirtless and he hasn't slept and he's groggy and he's freaking out. Like, that to me was a major, like, I, I was like, wait a minute. And plus the brother is trying to find the killer, like, also, which I thought was really bizarre. Like, the cops go to the house and say, like, hey, we're checking to see it. And he's like, hey, guys, I I'm trying to find this killer, too. He's got to live around this area. And it's like, you're literally living in the, in the house that this is happening? Like, I, and he's, it's clear that he's not in on it because Ethan Hawke brains him with an axe at the end. So it wasn't like they were in on it together. So I, that part really threw me off. I did not understand the brother aspect of this at all. So I actually didn't think that was too far off considering that uh, with the soundproof uh, 
here's the thing. I think that since he just came in from Durango and it doesn't seem like he's been there that long. And um, the grabber just grabbed Finn. I wasn't sure if he had made all that stuff when I felt like he made that stuff in Durango. Um, he's out of work and he's now he's going to move in with his brother, which is which Ethan Hawke didn't obviously probably didn't suspect. But it's, you know, he's an idiot, but it's his is idiot, as he says. Uh, I think with all the cocaine that he does um, that, yeah, he passes out. And then when he hears the dog um, that um, the, I mean, he wakes up with the dog. Uh, when the dog barks, um, but not um, with the kids. But then again, I just don't feel like the brother was there when all the other boys were there, but only when Finn. Sure. No, no, there. sure. That, that makes sense. But what I'm saying is, is like, wouldn't he come out at one point? Like, is Ethan Hawke wearing the mask all the time in the house? Like, is like they, they mentioned that he sits up there and waits for the kid to come out. So, like, is he just hoping his brother doesn't wake up and find him? sitting with his shirt off with a creepy mask on and a belt in the kitchen. You know what I mean? It just, it, it doesn't, the logic of it. And I would give it a break if there wasn't all the other logical things I can't grasp with this movie. <laughs> so I would give it a break then. And, and I don't want it to feel like I'm nitpicking. Cause I don't think I am. I think these are major, uh, major things, you know, in the movie that, cause you're making great explanations, which I appreciate. But like I said, they all have maybe attached to them or maybe he's doing this or maybe he's doing that. Like, I don't I can't get behind a maybe we shouldn't be having theories about plot elements. We should have theories about what maybe this symbolism means or this means or what that means, but not basic plot structure. We shouldn't be like, well, maybe he does this. You know, it's, it's almost I'm not going to say it's as bad as this. But it's almost as bad. It's like a level up of somehow Palpatine returned. Like it just, it just, it just. <laughs> how did I know a... you? <laughs> how did I know you just... put Star Wars into this? Come on. Well, I'm just saying because I mean that's that is that's the bo- like that's the nadir right there. That's like we have no mm. way to explain this. At least Katie <laughs> can kind of explain it with maybes, like with. Uh, Rise of Skywalker, there was just like me, uh, somehow I came back, let's not worry about it. This is the same, <laughs> to me, this is the kind of thing, it's like, just go with it. We got floating dead kids that can talk on a black phone. There's a girl who has dreams. Sometimes her dreams are real, sometimes they're not. She talks to God, she doesn't think God's real. And then Ethan Hawke has this thing, and it's just too much stuff, too much stuff going on. Make it Ethan Hawke versus the kid. That's it. Poor classic. Now, I I disagree. I like the fact that with since I had that backstory with the mom having the gifts and then that those gifts um, made her go crazy. I feel like that is explanation of why Gwen and then Finn are able to have this like supernatural connection. I also feel like even though um, the kids are dead and warning him that with Ethan Hawke up top. Um, with his shirt off, uh, and I'm glad that he's just not, you know, ripped. I mean, it's not like he's overweight or anything, but he, just, you know, he actually has a dad bod. Um, I wish I had that dad bod, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that when uh, I think the dead boys telling Will, I mean, sorry, telling um, Finn hey. what is going to <laughs> telling Finn what is going to happen to him if he goes up there. Um, is worse than um, it just in my mind imagining what is going to happen to him 
and sure. the way they explain it, I think is worse than if they actually had shown it. Uh, well, I, and that is one of those elements with the supernatural boys, you know, dead boys, like saying that to him and warning him and stuff like that. I feel like those are key points that it's like, it's, it's terrifying to think those kids went through that and then to see their bruises and their scrapes yeah. and like the blood on their. And I also like the fact that this didn't have, this wasn't an over amount of blood and each sure. one of the key key um or even just you could say the keys the keys that um the boys gave uh finn to make sure they get um got out are all essential especially i i did i wasn't understanding the whole thing with the freezer but then the fact that um he got that meat out and um you know gave it to samson which i guess that is one of the other faults i had it's like i mean it is late 70s i mean i'll give you that he has the house. He also has a house across the street. And then he has a freaking um, freezer full of like um, sirloins. What the hell is this grabber guy's um, job? Like, I mean, I do realize that real estate in the late 70s was a lot cheaper than it is now. And I mean, you know, you could work a part time job in the, um, the summer and pay for college. But damn, I mean, that those that um, those steaks were sweet. And that was a giant dog. So, I mean, he is feeding him something. It's like, I really don't feel like he's making that much being a clown. Uh, but <laughs> I don't know his life. You know, I don't know what's going on with that. I, I kind of like that I don't. But I'd rather have the maybe than uh, the definitive, like, well, this is what actually happened. Uh, and that's why. Oh, sure, sure. No, I yeah. agree with that. Like, yeah. there was. There was another aspect that I dug too that I wish they expanded upon. It's like I said, with the Ethan Hawk with the mask, you know, he hates his having his mask off. Yes. Cool little detail we don't get information on. Another mm -hmm. cool detail I did like about the supernatural part is that the kids, now that they're dead, they don't remember their names. And I was thinking it would be like a brave thing, kind of like in Brave, how like the more she's a bear, the more she becomes a bear. Like I like the idea of these of these ghosts, so to speak grasping on to the little things that they can hold on to before they essentially just dissipate. Yes. But they don't really explore that either. They explored a little bit by saying like, Oh, was that my name? I delivered papers. And then like the, um, the baseball player kid is always like, your arm is mint. Like he's kind of, it's almost like he's hanging on to the last little... thing that he said. Right. But I, they don't really go into that either. I'm not saying you need to explain all that to me, but like maybe they could have added some stakes. Like, the boy could be like, I'm, I'm starting to not remember. I think the code is on the wall. Like, you know, it could add a little pressure to it. Instead, it just kind of feels like, oh, yeah, here's clue number one. Here's clue number two. I feel bad. I feel like I'm just trashing all over this film. It's not, I mean, it's not bad. It's just, I have too many, too many questions. Like, and, and it's and not in a good way. Like, in the mechanics of the movie, not like, I'm all for, you know, what does this mean? What what could this possibly mean? But that, there's just too much. Like the other thing is, is the the grabber. It, it makes sense that when he kidnaps the um, Hispanic boy, um, that makes sense to me because it's like in the back of an abandoned Walmart, like on a Saturday, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no witnesses. But like every other kidnapping, it's like this dude's driving an abracadabra van. He's got 900 black balloons. He's wearing makeup and a mask. And he's just grabbing these dudes in the middle. I mean, you're telling me there's no one, no one out 
getting their mail or mowing the yard or uh, like there's no one in the neighborhood. Like he's capturing them in broad daylight in the middle of like neighborhoods that are obviously within walking distance of his two homes. Like, I don't feel like there was any plan there, you know, for him to be this effective grabber. I mean, he, maybe he, he only grabbed six kids. I get that, but I kind of feel like he would be caught on the first one, <laughs> you know, basically is, or he's learning and he's capturing the Hispanic kid behind a mall somewhere, as opposed to just in the middle of the neighborhood, you know? But I don't know. That's just me. That's probably me nitpicking at this point. So with that, that I want to bring up, that's similar to what John Wayne Gacy did. Like he, and look at um, Jeffrey okay. Dahmer. Like he would pick up um, um, kids or boys. And um, I know there's a, uh, I mean, it's all about the trust. Like when I dis, um, mentioned the nod to uh, Silence of the Lambs, like when, the grabber picks up Finn. What is, what is he doing? He, um, he dropped the eggs. He's trying to pick them up. It's like, Oh, do you need help? It's like, you have these kids. And besides uh, Finn's friend, who was kind of the bully and all that stuff. I mean, you don't know the circumstances with the rest of the kids. It's like, these are the things like with Finn, you know, he saw a guy who was in trouble. Um, it's like, Oh, you know, I can help you and stuff. And then when he heard when he saw the black balloons, that's what keyed him in. That it's like, oh wait, this is a bad guy. And I feel then like he grabs him. He grabs yeah. him, and there's a huge fight, and they're screaming, and he's stabbing him with the rocket ship in the arm. Which uh, Ethan Hawke must have some awesome pain abilities because, like, that rocket goes like deep into his tendons, and he throws him in the back. And I mean, I'm just saying, it seems too obvious. And they do hint that the um, the baseball player boy, you know the truck pulls up to him i I think what you're talking about the other serial killers that you're mentioning is i think with bundy i don't know i don't know all my serial killer history but that was more like he was picking up girls for like dates and sex and stuff right and then he would do his thing and gentleman gacy was like hey come help me in my house right or was it like just abduction in plain sight uh bundy was abduction in plain sight he would do the thing where he had like a cast on his um arm it's like Hey, and then, uh, but later on, it was just an abduction in plain sight. Oh, see, I don't see. I didn't know that. That might be more realistic than than I'm giving you credit for. And with the kids, I feel like with the uh, more clues that Finn got when it was later on, especially with the kid who couldn't remember the combination. Um, since the last one that talked to him was his friend, who was the one who got abducted right before Finn. I feel like they knew more about themselves because it was fresh and with those um the kid before and kid that's like oh my god you're this kid and it's like i i think i remember this it's like it's hard for them to remember because it's been so long since um i don't know i feel like each one of the boys that got kidnapped they knew more the fresher it was that they had gotten abducted so when you have the kid who uh had the combination he was one of um like the first two or three that had gotten abducted. So he barely knew who he was. And that's why it was kind of, that was my justification of why um, the less they remembered about themselves. Now I, I would like to talk about some symbolism. Now these are the maybes that I can accept. Now I want to get your opinion on something. Okay. Um, this movie does focus a lot. Now, when I was talking about kids being brutalized, uh, I was I was mentioning just like bullies fighting bullies and stuff, but there are two particular moments in this movie where there is kid on kid violence that gets 
very extreme. Yeah. Um, the Hispanic kid in the beginning, I don't know, is Robin? Is that his name? Robin. Like, we see him yeah. in a fight with a bully, right? And yes. he easily defeats him. But then, like, it takes time to show, like, he just starts savagely beating him. Like, the guy is down. He's dead already. Like, but this kid just continues to beat him to a pulp. And then one of the other victims later, um, we see him, like, destroy these two boys in the in the uh, 7-Eleven or whatever. Like, and it's it's very much, like, not just, like, stopping the fight. Like, he is taking them out until they are completely gone. Now, it just so happens that these two boys are uh, taken as victims. Is there anything you think that the screenplay or or about Ethan Hawke's attraction to these particular kids or anything with their violence? Is there anything you think there's any connection there? Because I'm trying to wrap my head around why Derrickson focused so much on showing those two kids beat these other kids into submission when it didn't really like serve. Like if you're, if you're trying to show that Robin is the badass at school, right? I get that. Like have him beat the bully up, but like they make special attention to show him continually beat this kid up, even when he's unconscious. And then, like That's I said, the question. kid in like the playing question. pinball, that was another victim. Yeah. The, and then the guy playing pinball, they make it very evident. Like he doesn't just like beat them up. He like starts slamming their heads in the pavement. Like, they take extra time to show extra brutality from these kids. Do you find any connection there between maybe why they were captured and their tendency towards violence? What, do you, what are you thinking about that? Well, I feel like with Robin, when uh, he beats the crap out of Moose, yeah. uh, Moose is that big guy that he just beats and beats and beats and beats. I yeah. feel like when you have that at the beginning, and then you have Finn at the end beating the grabber and just beating and beating and beating and beating. I feel like that was Robin's influence on Finn. It's like you can't just let him, you know, like stop with blood. You have to make sure that he's down, that he won't get back up and he will never do this again. Like that was my like, especially since that it was like bookends of that mm. uh, regarding the. Regarding the pinball, I'm not exactly sure uh, unless, you know, the grabber's trying to go with kids who maybe like put up a fight a little bit. Uh, but I don't know how he would know any right. of that. I feel like, he, you know, he just saw the, um, the boys or maybe, you know, he's watching the baseball games. You know, he's lurking in the shadows because, I mean, you know, a guy's got a black van and I mean, people don't seem to know. And they're like going, the police are like going house to house. And when the police are there, I mean, the black van's gone. So I don't know what he does during the day, but I definitely feel like the reason why they showed that violence towards um, Robin doing that violence towards Moose was an influence to Finn that it's like, you are in a situation now you cannot stop. You need to make sure this is finished and you need to remember that this guy was going to hurt you and mm. don't stop. That was my, that's what, um, that's actually, I wrote that down. I was like, I like the book in violence, at least, you know, Robin, um, had, cause I mean, Robin was the only kid that was actually, you know, pretty kind to Finn. That was his true friend. And as soon as he escaped, then you've got that violence that those bullies had on him. And God, I love Gwen. Gwen again, she's a freaking rock star, man. Like the fact that yeah. she, 
that rock to that other bully. And I mean, he had blood coming down his face and then she got it herself. I mean, kicked her in the they face. didn't let up. Like you were right. I mean, this is violence towards kids. Yeah. It's a very violent movie. And, um, so that's why I was, I, I'm, I guess I'm reach. I'm trying to find something to connect it. Cause I was a little put off. I'm not a put off by violence. Obviously I don't care, but I was a little taken aback by that focus on such extreme violence when Robin beats the kid up. Cause, um, and I see what you're saying about that connection, but in a way though, like I, I can get it from a plot point. Like, like for example, here's my weird comp of the day. On Star Trek The Next Generation, you know, they always had to have a dude, a bad guy, beat up Worf on the show because Worf was the biggest and the baddest, right? So they're showing you that this kid can kick anybody's ass, right? So maybe that's how bad Ethan Hawke is. He could take this kid down, you know? So I can I can get it for that plot purpose, but uh, I, I thought, he, I thought uh, the kid killed... Uh, Ethan Hawke way too easy. <laughs> like no fight in that one. Like he gets him pretty easily. And I was a little disappointed in that, but maybe that's because I wanted to see Ethan Hawke suffer more. I don't know, but that's just me. But before we, cause we'd be going on for a little bit. What do you think about my take on this unnecessary period peaceness that's been hanging around Ooh. Hollywood since stranger things happened? Nostalgia, um, nostalgia is always going to sell, hence why they have like 18 jillion sequels to so many films, especially in the millennium. Uh, but I feel like, uh, and I think I pointed out, like with circumstances like this, where, I mean, you don't have cell phones, you don't have cameras that are doing security, you don't have uh, on, um, you don't have security cameras and, you know, in the streets. You don't have that on the doorbells and stuff like that to have a, you know, to going back to these decades where when kids disappeared, they usually disappeared. And as Gwen says, you know, you're not going to find them the way you want to. I feel mm -hmm. like that's, I feel like, I mean, even now that can happen, but usually it's like, okay, this is the last place we saw them. This is the last place. And then all of a sudden they disappear. How does this happen? track the phone, track this, all that stuff. When you don't have any of that, it's like, I feel like it's hard for people and at least, you know, people born in 2000 to kind of relate to that. And because, you know, for, from the time they were born, they were practically, you know, I don't want to say they were tagged, but it's like, you've got some way of figuring out like where they are 24 seven and to go back to a time when that wasn't even, that wasn't even, uh, in someone's imagination, I feel like you need to, you need to see like this, this is scary. This is scary. You have to watch out. You have to be careful. You have to, you know, don't talk to strangers. That's a big thing. And I understand what you're saying with the, you know, with the eighties and all that stuff. And stranger things definitely has like so much nostalgia with all of the, that's more to me, more merchandising. This more to me is the circumstance of just being unable to actually track where these people are and again i get I, you okay so it's it's kind of like a, a long game version of like someone up in the woods and the phone lines get cut this is just a version of like okay we want to tell this kidnapping story hard to tell that story in 2022 with so much footage and people being live and having phones so the best way to tell this story is in the past is that kind of what you're 
Yeah, yes, it's like exactly like the yeah. Home Alone situation where that movie is erased by a cell phone <laughs> in the first yeah. 15 sure. minutes. Sure. Yeah, I just I, I maybe I'm just a little bit more cynical about it because <laughs> I kind of I kind of felt because no, the movie is cool. I mean, the 70s are fucking awesome. I mean, I love the 70s. Um, you know, the the outfits are cool. The music's great, you know, but I, I did feel it was kind of like a, here. Here's. We got a we got a costume budget and we've got some licensing for some really awesome songs, you know, by Fog Hat or whatever. So let's do it. You know, like I, I just I guess I'm cynical because and, and don't get me wrong, like I don't mind things that rip off other things. That's kind of how the industry works. Um, as long like because there's that movie I'm sure you've seen. I don't know if Don's seen it, but I know you have, Katie. The Summer of '84. Did you see that? Yep. Oh yeah. I have like that not. movie. That movie to me existed purely for because of Stranger Things. They were like, let's have kids investigating a serial killer in the 1980s. Now, what they happen to do with that is a refresh. Because to me, the ending of that movie is fucking brutal. Like it that that <laughs> leaves some, that movie that the end of that movie. Like I don't really remember anything that happened in the first hour and a half. <laughs> but the, the ending, like just the way they set up the ending and how it's open ended, and like mm-hmm. these kids are going to be ruined for life, they took something that I thought was made for maybe a cynical purpose, and they crafted art out of it. So, like, I'm not, I'm not against this kind of thing, but like, for instance, um, like with it, like it's very clear when they made it. Like, I understand the time difference, and you want to have it set in the modern day and not the modern day of the '80s, like it was in the book. But, like, there, something about that book was, like, there was so much 50s and 80s in it. And that one takes it 80s and present day. And the 80s part of it just feels so much like, well, we've got Finn Wolfhard and the 80s are big right now. Let's make it in the 80s. You know what I mean? And it just, it, it just felt very cynical to me. And I guess I'm kind of getting that with this. But, I mean, I'm not going to say you're changing my mind on my rating on this. But, like... <laughs> I, I I am getting out of the. I, I my original take was that they just did this for cool needle drops, and now I'm starting to see a little bit more of what you're talking about. Where it's that is kind of a, you know, I'm not going to say a trope. It's it's kind of like uh like how every now and then Stranger Things will get something right about the '80s. Like this season, they're talking about Satanic Panic with metal music and D and D and stuff, and I. I love that aspect because that's true. I lived through that, you know, um, and some of that, what they're doing in the show. So they're like accidentally falling into it. So I can see what you're saying is like, there is kind of this time period where, you know, summer of Sam, stranger danger, abduction, you know, kind of stuff in the seventies kind of has a place. So I, I'm, I'm seeing more of a justification. You're turning me more to like seeing a justification for making it in the seventies, other than the aesthetic reasons. Well, and like the Zodiac, I mean, they still don't know who that is. They still don't have a justi- justification of why he's it. It's that's one of those. I mean, and that's what I love about uh, this. It's like there's no justification. You know, as you had said, when he takes off his mask, you know, you kind of it's like uh, something. It's like, yeah, do I feel like they sort of maybe hinted at a possibility of like dissociative disorder and all that stuff? Yeah, definitely. Do they go into that? go more into that no and i'm glad because that's fine that's totally fine totally yeah fine. i'm not i have no issues with that at all i actually that was my favorite part of the movie is he actually gets it, it's nice to see 
like the villain get one upped by their insecurity. Yeah. So the kid takes the mask off and then like Ethan Hawke's pretty much paralyzed at that point because he doesn't want his face shown for whatever reason. And I love the idea of trying to figure out what that reason is. That's the part of the movie that stuck with me. I'm like, what makes this guy tick? I'll never know. And that's kind of like probably why people love the serial killer stuff is because a lot of it is what makes these people tick. We'll never know. You know, it's, yeah, and that's I mean, kinda cool. That's kind of cool. You know, once a 90s hit, everybody wants to be a profiler. And the fact is, I mean, you know, (laughs) you can do as much knowledge and background as you want, but also it's probably going to be possibly that one person who has been lying to you this entire time that's going to give you then their family history. So that really may not be the reason why, you know, stuff is going on. This, I mean, I feel like sometimes there's just people who are just pure evil and there's no justification of why they're doing what they're doing. But with this, I felt, yeah, uh, yeah. I think that seventies were a scary, scary, scary place. I mean, watching a lot of stuff on Netflix, it's like, yeah, people would just get abducted like left and right. Little girls like, no, it's like, Oh, she rode her bike. We told her to go straight home. And then the next thing, you know, 10 days later, they find her body in a ravine. No one saw her get, um, picked up no one saw um anyone drive no one um uh, nothing and there's like you know thousands and tens of thousands of stories like that where you have the picture of this is the last time you saw them and then next thing you know this is the body and and we we, instead of trying to figure out how we rescue her we're gonna have to try and figure out how she died and going all over those things and that's you know the more i see that it just breaks my heart uh but yeah I dug this movie. I liked um, the music too. I thought the music was good. But again, the main thing I like about this, um, I love the fact, well, besides Madeline McGraw, she's a superstar. Give her a series. I hope she's in the next like Hunger Games or whatever. And, you know, mm-hmm. she's like on billboards and she has a career that spans 30 years because she was amazing. I don't necessarily wow. agree with what you said about the script because, um, and le- I mean, other than she did get all the she did get all the great lines when she's speaking to the deity in the sky that that takes balls for her to do what she was talking to when sure. she um <laughs> yeah, she, was, was, she was great and and a lot of people are getting a lot of set like my crowd at my theater you know as soon as the kid snaps Ethan Hawke's neck like a bunch of people in my theater were like hell yeah like you know, like like it, so it's connecting with people and that's cool. But um, I just yeah, I just I had trouble. I, I just couldn't get over some of the plot stuff. That that's just I couldn't get into the story because I was thinking too much about the script. Personally, uh, I liked a lot of this. I would love this to be. I feel like a lot of this is a. I mean, I don't know what the behind the scenes on this is. I know that Scott Derrickson was. I mean, we all know that in 95% of the cases, creative differences means you're probably fired. Um, You know, he was taken off of Doctor Strange 2, and this was Mm -hmm. obviously his next project after that. So I don't know how much he was doing in Doctor Strange 2 and how much he put into this. I kind of almost feel like I would like to see this done again with another pass, if that makes sense. Like, uh, another pass of the screenplay. Because uh, I think there is a great movie in here. I'm just not seeing it myself yet. 
Gotcha, gotcha. No, yeah, I I wasn't sure if he left uh Doctor Strange to do this or this was he was in the middle of this and then doing Doctor Strange and it was too much. I forget. Uh but I mean, I I understand what um you're saying. I mean, I liked it. I think it's great. And again, I think the main thing I love about this is the ending because that is something that you honestly, I honestly, I think can, I can count on five hands where it's just actually a happy ending where this is a kid who's alive. His sister's alive. He's able to go on with his life and like have a little bit of, uh, he's a bit more brave than he was before because yeah, it gets the girl in the end. Yeah. He does. He does. And he killed the serial killer. It's like, I mean, this kid's, you know, Mr. Popular now. And, that's something you just don't see because like you said, 1984, yeah. 1984 is a mind F like that. That ending is the ending that is usually in horror films because it's not an ending. It's like, you know, these kids are messed up. It's like, it doesn't yeah. like survival is not, is not the happy ending survival. It's and, like, that can actually make it worse. <laughs> and here's my hot take. Um, Cause I know a lot of people do not like, the Rob Zombie Halloween movies. Um, and I did not watch them for a long time because I'm a purist when it comes to Halloween, but I like Rob Zombie. So I watched the first Halloween thought, yeah, okay. But Halloween two, I really loved for that reason, because most of that movie is dealing with the consequences of surviving a horrific situation. Mm-hmm. So the reason why that movie worked for me, I don't know if it worked for you or if you like it or not, but I love that movie because it does exactly what you're talking about. Like it shows you like, cause you know, Halloween two, like if, <laughs> if we're in the original timeline, Halloween two with Jamie Lee Curtis, it's the next, like it's that night. And then H2O in that timeline, like she's still haunted by it, but she's kind of moved on like Halloween two in the Rob zombie verse. Like that girl is fucked up from the experience that she had. And I love that they explored that. And I think more horror films should explore that. Like, frankly, I think they should look into the psychosis. Like, I mean, that's part of what took me out of like some of the scream sequels is that like Sydney at this point should be like comatose, (laughs) like having like mental breakdowns. She should be committed, you know, but she's still just having kids and having fun walking around, you know, and I'm just like, Jesus, like, your life should be over. Like you have witnessed every single person you've ever loved or slept with or, or been related to slaughtered in front of you. Uh, so I would like movies to do that. And I, I get a sense of that with the black phone, like that girl, it, her future doesn't seem that bright because obviously her mother was driven to suicide by these quote unquote powers that she had. So what is in store for this, that little girl? You know, they don't really explore that either. I would have liked to have a, I know it's a happy ending, but I would have liked to have maybe not as brutal as summer of 84, but give me a little, like little tension there with like, Hey, we're all good. We saved you. But you know, like, am I going to end up killing myself in the future because I'm going to end up going crazy over my powers or what, you know? So I don't know. Just my thought. It's a possibility. One of the things, I don't know if I've told you guys this, there's that philosophical question. Like if you could have, I don't know if it's philosophical, if you could have all the money in the world or have all the knowledge in the world, uh, what would you want? And I always say all the money in the world, 
And I've had, you know, people be like, oh, well, you know, that's just, you know, that's petty and all that stuff. I'm like, and I'm like, so why don't you ask me why, why I don't want all the knowledge in the world? And it's like, well, why don't you? It's like, because what do you think it's like to have all the knowledge in the world? And then no one listens to you. You will go mad. And if no one believes you, then, you know, that's actually worse. And it's like, oh, that makes them like, yeah, I'm not stupid. I mean, I know what I'm talking about, but I mean, that's, and that's the thing that possibly, you know, with her mom, it's like, if you can see these things and no one listens to you, or if you have a husband who beats you and is a drinker, it's like, you know, it's easier to uh, do what she did or who knows. I mean, I wonder with, with dad, I always wonder if like what, what happened? Cause the way he was beating Gwen, I don't know. Um, there seems like there could be another story for there, there. But I mean, if they were to do a sequel, I would love it. If as long as they write Gwen the way she was in this one, um, I, if, I mean, if they do a sequel, have it have nothing to do with nothing to do with this film. If that makes sense, right. like, like, um, see, the one thing I love about like some of my favorite franchises, like my, one of my favorite action franchises, is lethal weapon what i like about that is the characters grow but it's always like a new thing every movie it was it was like a new villain a new problem a new plot issue like it wasn't like this thing where i think um i speaking of stranger things that has this problem uh a lot of other connected universes tv shows especially star wars they feel like they have to connect every dot and explain everything and super frustrating so like I would like to see this girl with her powers again, but have it be completely unrelated to this. Do not bring back Ethan Hawke or bring any of that crap up. Maybe like as a background thing, like, oh, remember when you solved that case? You know, like, but have it be a completely different, just have it be part two, but it has nothing to do with any of this. I would be down with that. If I get another sequel to this, I I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know if I could handle it. If they, and I talked to somebody about this one Unless Ethan Hawke is the grabber, like as a prequel, but it's something which I don't even know if they would do that unless they did it 20 years in the past. And I was actually off the top of my head thinking Dane DeHaan would be a good version of him like um, 20 years ago. Not necessarily. And again, not justifying why he's a creep and doing this stuff, but looking into his background of where this started and, you know, doing that um, kind of profiling on that but at this time i i mean that's just i i actually think this is a good standalone film i think this is a great starting point for these i mean as you said madeline mcgraw has been a lot of stuff but i think this is something that's really going to put her in a different level regarding um films and i think uh is it mason thames thames um i mean i think he's great and i think he you know has a lot of room to grow and I could definitely see him having a solid, solid career from what he did on this. So yeah, those kids, I mean, I think the casting on this is great and I love me some James Ranson. I want him and Ethan Hawke to just be in more films together and just do a buddy cop thing. Cause I just love it when they share the screen. This is like the sixth film. I think they've shared the screen on and I just love their chemistry together. Hmm. Well, before Don outros us, can you give us how 
the wonderful people out there can engage with you? Like what's your, what's your, uh, books of faces and the chat snaps and all that stuff, your fax <laughs> number, all that. <laughs> so my, MySpace is, um, <laughs> uh, and you can, um, you can snail mail me at, no, just kidding. Um, oh, so well, you can oh find me, you can find me on the blonde in front. Uh, and it is the blonde B L O N D E in front on YouTube, on Facebook and on Instagram. And then every once in a while, I am the blonde in front of fear on radio four, where I recently did my review of the black phone, where I'm wearing the mask that is similar to Ethan mm. Hunt, and then if I take it off, I've got black lipstick, but I'm also wearing the hat. I get all dressed up. I did that at the screening too. People were like, "Wow!" I'm like, "Fantastic <laughs> mask design." I will give I will give the movie that too. The the mask is awesome. Great yes. mask. Savini. I mean, he's a master. That's why I think whatever happens with this, the grabber's definitely going to be you know, one of those horror legends that people can be anytime during conventions, cosplay, Halloween. Sure. It's an easy costume to do. You just have to get, you just have to get that mask and that that's, that's just money. So it's creepy. As I, as I said before, Ethan Hawk, creepy AF and those masks do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Don, you want nice to done, you two. Yeah. Head us out. No, Katie. Katie, thanks for having us. It's been good. We're going to do another episode soon on Elvis, so stay tuned. Thanks for you're going to hear Katie. Thanks for having us. We're hosting her. She's not hosting (laughs) us. She didn't take over the show. (laughs) We're just helping you live your dream here, Will. You've been looking to get replaced me for a while, so this is this is the true. Here we go. This was your this was your test, Katie, to replace Don. (laughs) And I can see the flying colors from here, and not just because it's Pride Month. So yeah. All right, ladies (laughs) and gentlemen. Follow us on Twitter at CinephileFit and on Facebook at Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast. Also, find us both on Letterboxd. Thank you much for your captive audience and social media participation. Cinephile Hissy Fit is a 25-well media podcast brought to you by RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Please visit, rate, review, and subscribe. We are also on Rotten Tomatoes, the new Banana Meter, and have become charter members of the new Independent Film Critics of America group. If you enjoyed this show, Ruminations Radio Network has more where that came from with wonderful programs and interesting hosts. Our show and others are available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you find your favorite podcasts.